World Suicide Prevention Day is commemorated on the 10th of September to promote worldwide commitment and action to prevent suicides. On average, almost 3,000 people commit suicide daily. For every person who completes a suicide, 20 or more may attempt to end their lives. About 1 million people commit suicide each year. Every 40 seconds, the loss of a person who killed themselves shatters the lives of family and friends. According to SADAC, in South Africa, 9% of all teen deaths are due to suicide, and this figure is on the increase. In the 15 to 24 year old age group, suicide is the second leading and fastest growing cause of death. Children as young as seven have committed suicide in South Africa. Every day, 22 people take their lives. Suicide is on the increase, and the question, Luke, is why? Look, it's an extremely complex uh, conversation, Karen, because I think what happens is it, it evokes in us some extremely strong feelings, and I think particularly as parents, I mean, first of all, parents never want to be able to survive their children. No. I mean, there's there's no greater fear, I think, of any parent that they survive their children. And I think the second thing that creates the difficulty is the idea that the world that we have handed our children has become so untenable a place that they choose to not be in it. Or that they see the world as a place where they can't inhabit in any coherent way and the world is better off because they are not there. Now, within the context of the, the sort of the, the suicide discussion, I think the first thing we need to do is say very emphatically, as I said in a talk I did recently, is that when children talk of suicide, we have to take it seriously. Yeah. So we can call it whatever, you know, teenage angst and we can say oh you know children are dramatic or they be manipulative whatever whatever we want to have as a narrative around our denial of it or our minimization of it or rationalization of it we have to take it seriously and within that we need to distinguish a few things so the one thing that that we see that parents um, send to us is my child is harming themselves so now we're talking about things like children cutting themselves burning themselves and it looks like they are trying to kill themselves, but their stated aim is not to kill themselves, but rather to harm themselves, which is equally problematic and still needs uh, professional intervention, but is a slightly different thing. Then you have got the parasuicides, so the suicides where people will take, for example, too many tablets and phone you and say, I've taken too many tablets, and those people say, are oh, they attention-seeking? Well, that may or may not be the case, but the, the truth is if, if that's the way you're choosing to communicate, something is desperately mm. wrong. And what people, must, uh, what people must understand is that people kill themselves accidentally on purpose. So in other words, there will be a parasuicide and say, I need the attention, so I'm going to have the parasuicide, I'm going to take the tablets and someone will find me in time. So I'm going to use it as a communication, but then no one finds them in time and they die. Mm. Okay, So parasuicides die accidentally and people who want to die sometimes will leave the, you, you will not even know that it was going to happen. So you'll, I mean, when, when I did my research on suicide, one of the interesting things that we saw was that you would have things, nobody knew anything was wrong with this young man. You would find a note on the door saying, you know, please do not come inside, call the emergency services because there's a medical issue inside. No idea, no no one noticed anything. There was no fanfare around it. A thought of, you know, I don't want to traumatize the people who find me, but there was no indication. 
and sometimes people who intend to kill themselves don't get it right. Mm. So there's there's an enormous amount of complexity around suicidal behavior that we need to pay attention to. But I think the ultimate thing is that it is a form of communication and it's a form of communication that the world that they currently inhabit is untenable. So in other words, I don't know how to live in this world or alternatively that I the world would be better off if I'm not here. And we need to address that. And it is a call for professional help. And it is not attention-seeking. And it's not manipulative until we find out it is. And we find alternatives. It is a life-threatening issue. So, Luke, do you think uh, uh, the stigma around mental illness still has got so much to do with the fact that if, if there's cutting or self-harm, you've always said that what is the behavior telling us? Mm. And the fact that there's this massive stigma around mental health um, has a part to play in that if we have cold or flu, which, okay, obviously is not like chronic, but if we have a chronic illness, it's treated. So you'll go to your specialist, the specialist will help you deal with it, and you will live as normal a life as you possibly can with your chronic illness. And depression, anxiety, all of these things, especially among teens, they're not necessarily things that we diagnosed, certainly in our day. Mm. Very, very few teens had uh, ADD, uh, all of all of these kind of things. So, so what what can we do to normalise mental illness and to make it okay to ask for help? Well, it's, it's really interesting. So, it, it, the first question is: Is there stigma around mental health? There most absolutely is. So, if you look at, I mean, we we're now in September and we've just come out of Olympics and Paralympics. And what's really interesting is if you look at the um, leading up to the Olympics, the um, the tennis player Osaka, and you look at the Olympian Biles, mm. where they're saying this world is untenable. And that world was the world of competitive sport, where you need to perform endlessly and you need to be able to be interviewed and you're almost like a show pony mm. in, in many ways, you know. And it's not about you being the person who is seen, it's what you do. Mm and the fragility of that. And there's, there's a brilliant documentary um, called The Weight of Gold. And it, it was interesting because during the Olympics, all these things popped up. And it's actually narrated primarily by Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps has some serious mental health problems that he, he discloses. And the thing for him on it, I mean, and just using it because it's topical because we've just come out of Olympics, is that he said, all he was was a swimmer, and he didn't know what else to be. So when he had to be a husband or a father or anything else, it was just, I don't know how to perform. And the one thing we know about being an athlete, or certainly an elite athlete of that category, is that the only thing you're sure of is it will end. Mm. And what is there there to replace it? So using that kind of, that, that metaphor, when Simone Biles in particular mm. came out and said, I need to protect my mental health and I need to be able to um, look after myself first because if I can't do that, I'm not going to be a great athlete. The backlash was extraordinary. It really was. And what it did was it polarized the world. Mm. I mean, you had people applauding her for mm. her, her heroic, courage. Correct, mm. heroic championing of um, the fact that even these really elite athletes who are seen as the pinnacle of the world can come and show the, the vulnerability of being at the pinnacle of the world and that 
being at the top of the pile is not everything in people's lives, etc. But the other side of it was equally hectic. And what that was, was, you know, you have been given these opportunities. You are a person who's at the top. You've let your country down. You're not patriotic, etc., etc. So there, there is, there, there's a lot of talk about mental health and a lot of how we are so enlightened or woke about mental health but we're actually not because still to this day if people are seen as being depressed or what they're seen as weak mm. they're seen as unable to cope they're seen as not being able to fulfill their their responsibilities flaky and unreliable flaky, unreliable mm. copping out we use all of these and then in the in the extreme cases seen as almost like being like unpatriotic or mm. ungrateful about the great things they've been given and, and offered and i mean that just exacerbates the issue. So I met a very interesting woman when I was in at a conference in New York. And she was an, an, an Olympic medalist swimmer. Mm -hmm. And she dedicated her entire life to the gold. Mm. I mean, literally. I mean, I think that's how she even phrased it. And the year she turned 18, she got the gold. Mm. And Olympic swimmer, I mean, great. She came home and fell into the deepest depression of her life. Mm. Because she said that, what what is there left because this is all i have so i think a lot of it is about the fact that we we pin our well-being to things external rather than focusing on the internal and the other thing is in terms of this constant striving for greatness we don't appreciate or acknowledge or venerate an ordinary mm. life there's a great honor in an ordinary mm. life you know, and it's this whole idea of I have to be some influence, I have to be special, I have to be this, and it's all quite external, and we're not building the internal, the social and emotional skills mm -hmm. that young people need. And under COVID, that has not happened because with, with COVID, the young people have not had the reflection of their peers, not had the reflection of the people in their worlds and school to feed the world back to them in a digestible way. They've been locked down, they've been on screens, they've got these um, online identities they're developing, and those online identities, some of the children I speak to in high school, they've got over a thousand followers. Now, Which is huge. It's huge. And they feel this responsibility to those followers that I've got to continue to please you. We talk about people pleasers. Um, and it's, it's I've got to give them information that they want rather than maybe information that I'm choosing to share. And it's even... It's even more than that. So, you know, we call, I mean, based on the, the Netflix series, but we, we, we call the, the machine the black mirror. Mm. So the black mirror is exactly that. It's black. And if you've got a thousand followers and you are developing your identity in the world, so you in adolescence and your stage of development is identity, your lifelong development is belonging. So you need to belong and you need to develop an identity in order to belong in various contexts. Now, you put yourself online and you create an identity online and you want to belong somewhere, you're getting a thousand people feeding back to you mm. or not. Or not. Based on what or you... Or negatively. Or negatively. So mm. you're getting feedback, you're getting negative, or you're getting ignored. Mm. Which is worse. Which is sometimes even worse. And then what happens is that identity doesn't take hold in anything that has a firm rooting. So when it shifts, as it does in adolescence, it doesn't, in my opinion, have a base on which to hold. So if something happens, I mean, adolescence is already a time of mm. catastrophic thinking and massive emotions and hormones and 
I mean, you remember having your first Can't boyfriend. Can't you find my place in the world? Well, I mean, you also remember your, your having your first boyfriend or girlfriend, and what happens is you're so in love, you sh- you're planning your entire <laughs> life, and then when you break up, you are sure you are going to die. <laughs> and then after that, you are in so much pain, you are scared you're not going to die because you're in so much pain. And and that's the adolescent. It's a beautiful time, but it's hard. A very and hard time. And parents very hard. find it even harder because they need to navigate it for their children, and yet they can't be lawnmower parents where they take away all that pain because we need to regulate and find balance. And the world is a painful place. Look, and I, th- and I think what, what has also happened with parents is parents, um, and I think there's a lot of complex reasons for it, so it's not a judgmental statement, but I think parents have copped out a bit. So we have two two things happening. It seems the one is those who call the bulldozer, helicopter, lawnmower, whatever kind of parenting, because we're terrified of what's going to happen to our children, which is, I mean, reasonable. And then the other is that, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's where children belong. You know, that's where they get their sense of belonging online. You know, that's their recreation. It's not so, it's not so much that, because there's a lack of balance. Mm. And I think that lack of balance, because, for example, if, if you take being online and mental health, so you, you take a young person who's struggling with a mental health issue, they go online and they type in the word suicide or death or whatever, or teen suicide. They might get statistics. They might get a link to SADAG. They might get a support group for young teens who are struggling, or they might get a suicide pact group that mm. they can belong to where they all… And that's terrifying. That's no, no, just and, it, and, it and, so and they exist, no, yes. No, 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 and it happens in a big way. Mm. So if you take another example of, um, say, young romances where um, I want to be that person who's there for, for a person because no one understands them. And in fact, there's another documentary on this which was really fascinating where a young couple dating mainly online and what happens is he's the, you know he's depressed and he's going to kill himself and then he's in and out of facilities and then he gets his girlfriend and he's going to kill himself and she's trying to help him and eventually she thinks the way to help him is to help him to rest without pain. So in other words, to die. Mm. So he then goes and he sits in where, wherever he's going to kill himself. I think it was in a car. And he says to her, I'm killing myself, I'm killing myself. And she's a, and eventually I think she says something to the effect of, yes, well, go get back in the car. Because in her mind, she's saying he's in so much pain, mm. she wants him to rest. And suicide for people mm. often is the longing to rest without pain. And what happens is that he gets back in the car and he does die. Mm. They charge her with um, oh. accessory to murder. To murder. Because she encouraged him, because the causation was if he stayed out the car and he didn't get back in. Now, I mean, that's that's online in a relationship. You know, it's not even a suicide pact. Mm. Then you have got groups where they are um, they, they're almost instructing people on on suicide. Mm. You know, the the ways to kill yourself and cults. Cults. So that is a huge thing where the cult leader will have such control over his followers. Um, that he'll get them to all kill themselves. Well, look, you know, at the, at the moment, if anybody's going to have any kind of um, apocalyptic sort of re- revelatory belief, now's the time. Because mm. if you if you were ever going to look at a time where you know people think the end of days are nigh, you know, with we're just um, waiting for the locusts and floods. Hundred mm. percent. And you know, if you look at world politics and world leaders and the rise of nationalism. 
and just the, the, the bizarre nature of um, of our world, and then you hit it with a pandemic, etc. Mm. You know, if I as a young person were trying to negotiate my identity, find my place to belong, and find a sense of meaning in this current world, I would not know where to go. And I, I, I saw a young I saw a young man the other day, and I mean, he made, a, he made a profound statement to me. He said, you know what? We have become the generation of happy pictures and sad lives. Mm-hmm. So true. Luke, um, very often if we know somebody who, who has committed suicide, somebody in our circle, very often there is a lot of anger and a lot of judgment. And I remember... And, and and I'm probably going to get the Bible verse wrong because I'm not very good at Bible verses. But I remember his funeral so clearly. It's somebody that you actually know, um, which I won't mention on air, but probably 20, 25 years ago. And I remember sitting at the funeral wondering, you know, you always wonder why and what could have been done more and what have you. And the minister was, was really, really good in that um, – he quoted, you know, as I walk through the valley of death mm. and and just how sometimes people are living hell on earth. Mm. And the valley of death and the darkness was what this person was living. Mm. And yes, it's it's natural, you know, your five stages of grief and the different things you go through. And yes, you can be angry and, and question and everything. But how do we find it in ourselves to be kind and to be mm. forgiving? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's also something quite personal to me. I've had very, very close people to me take their own lives. I've had some of my mentors, you know, um, and people very close to them take lives. I've been to, I've been to a number of these funerals, and and the thing is, you know, for me, it's about the the meaning that these behaviours have. So, for example, the person close to me who who decided that the world was no longer a tenable place to live. He was in extreme pain, and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in, in incredibly close to me. And I know the amount of pain that he was in, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to no longer be in pain. He, the, the world, and this comes from another funeral I was at, but it, the world was, I, I mean, I think there's even song lyrics that I'm trying to find in my head, but the world was too cruel for mm. them to live in. It's like they'd been born into a world where they were too sensitive to inhabit. And what happened is they were much loved because they were these sensitive, intuitive, intellectual souls who were just beautiful people, but the world was too mm-hmm. cruel. And it was like they were walking around in the world without their skins on, and it was just so painful. And what happened was that, you know, as, as they tried to live in the world, the world just got crueler and mm-hmm. crueler. So... You know, the, the thing about, you know, trying to make meaning of that is they they took themselves out of the world, but they took themselves from us as well. Yeah. And what it's about for me is we talk about concepts of generative objects and terminal objects. So the world was a terminal thing mm. for them. It was it's, it's, it's the equivalent of having a terminal disease. Mm. And in fact, there was a case overseas where a woman with chronic depression, with chronic suicide attempts, applied to be euthanized mm. to say, I want an assisted suicide because, you know, I need, I need to be assisted for religious reasons and ethical and medical and whatever. But that, that the idea is this is a terminal disease mm. and it will kill you one day. But you kill yourself and then the judgment comes. And the interesting thing is the, the 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 quote that I remember from my research was that the dead shall live and the living die. 
So there's a way that they live on in us, and what they do is they kill a part of us. So that terminal object that took themselves at what could we have done more, why were we not more, why did we not listen, etc., etc., how do we make that into something that's a generative object? And the act of grief is in how we remember. And it's in remembering the, in remembering with them with authenticity and talking about them in authentic ways. And the fact that the world was too hard for them and they were too sensitive uh, for the world and not seeing it as being weak or it mm. was a cop-out or it was my failure. Or they were selfish. It, or they were selfish. That's, that's a word that is sort of bandied around a lot. Absolutely. Mm. Luke, um, in terms of help, where do people, where can they go for help? If they're feeling like the world is too cruel, that no one is listening to them, there are a lot of professional resources that people can turn to for help off the top mm. of your head? Look, the, the, the go-to people are sad. Yeah. And I think the reason SADAG are go-to is they are accessible and they've got great information online. They do fantastic talks. Mm. They're just all-around good people and they've stepped into that space in a wonderful way mm. and I encourage people to use them. And I think that the nice thing is even in the, you know, the, the way they call, the way they name themselves, it's a support group mm. because what you need is support. You know, sometimes these things pass and sometimes they don't. But you have to, especially when you're a developing teenager, you have to at least consider the possibility that this too shall pass, as intense and difficult as what it is. So we are going to put the details of SADAG up. It's been a difficult and a courageous conversation, but a very, very necessary one. We'll also share the details of, of Lifeline. Um, they also offer support. And reach out and just be kind to yourself because you, you are very important and you have a very important role to play in this world. And remember, parents, listen to your children's behavior. Thanks, Karen. Great conversation. Thanks, Luke.